You are listening to Aaron Petit on the Above the Noise Music Industry Podcast. Welcome back to the Above the Noise Music Industry Podcast. I'm Aaron Bethune, and today I am interviewing Michael Bainhorn. Now, Michael Bainhorn, for those that don't know, is a producer extraordinaire. Uh, the chances are you've heard a record that he has produced or that he has performed on or that he has co-written. The first big hit was with Herbie Hancock, who, of course, is the jazz master, the pianist. And the, the big single they had was Rocket, which became a Billboard number one and is actually regarded as one of hip-hop's seminal hits because it was the first recording to contain the legendary Fresh sample. Michael actually went on to produce some records that were quite a stretch from jazz as uh, he's worked with artists like Korn, Marilyn Manson, Soundgarden, Soul Asylum, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Hole, Raging Slab, Ozzy Osbourne, Muse, Social Distortion, The Golden Palominos, and Aerosmith. There's actually a list of artists that he's worked with and if I read those out I would be here for some time. Uh, I have a funny story that I share with Michael about the first time I listened to Black Hole Sun off the super unknown album by Soundgarden and uh, so you'll get the chance to hear that but more importantly you'll hear the insights that Michael has to share on a life in the music business and all of his expertise and talent that uh, I think you'll find that you can apply to areas of your own career so without further ado on to today's interview I know you like music, pick out an album. And I picked out The Division Bell by Pink Floyd. Uh-huh. And I remember she said, no, 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 you're not getting this. This is what everyone's listening to. And it was Black Hole Sun. Uh, and we get back to my grandmother's uh, house. Yes. And she's like in her 70s at the time. We get back to the, to the house and she cranks Black Hole Sun and starts like dancing to it. And it blew my mind because it was definitely not what I assumed my grandmother to be playing, but she was so adamant that I would not buy the division bell by Pink Floyd. And rather I would buy black hole sun by this band called Soundgarden. And, you know, thank you for telling me what is actually now, I would say my favorite story of a person who experienced black hole sun as a listener. (laughs) I think, I think, I think that was the best, the best one yet i'm actually going to pass that one on to my wife um that was thank you well this is different than people telling you how wonderful your record is which is always lovely to hear the actually that thing with your grandma and and hearing her dancing around the sun yeah. oh my god and being adamant about you buying that over the division bell <laughs> when she puts on Soundguard, and this was actually my introduction to, to grunge and this was my introduction to this whole sort of dark sound and <laughs> I, I didn't quite get it and i was sort of in this place where it's like you know it was a little strange that my grandmother who had actually never ever put on a record and just sort of got down to it mm-hmm. had, had put this on and it was like what's wrong with the division bell i just i really i love david um you know <laughs> david's guitar playing and i was thinking man I, anyway so there you go. <laughs> that's wonderful that's that's absolutely wonderful i love that thank you so my first question is how you got into the music industry uh well i was in a band to begin with uh actually <laughs> the <laughs> the earliest stage I, I bought a synthesizer a micro when i was 14 
for money that I earned pushing a uh, cart around Flushing Meadow Park <laughs> one summer because um, I was obsessed um, from the time that I was really little with synthesizers, which is kind of an odd thing for a kid to be interested in, you know, especially in like the 1970s. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, from the first time I heard Switched on Bach, I was kind of hooked. <laughs> and it just went downhill from there. Um, but, yeah, I got this synthesizer and I was kind of all of a sudden the only kid that a lot of people knew had a synthesizer, you know, however, you know, teeny it was. And I started playing in bands. One thing led to another and I wound up co-forming, <laughs> if the word exists, a band called Material, which uh, actually started to develop a really uh, strong reputation in New York City over the late 1970s, early 1980s. And we started making records where we began to use outside uh, contributors and performers. And they, in turn, over time, started asking us to produce their records. So we sort of developed from being musicians and writers into production team. And from there, we wound up getting asked to co-produce a record for Herbie Hancock, um, who was, at that time, about to lose his deal with Sony Music, which was Columbia back then. Right. And through the grace of whatever higher powers exist, or you know, however you want to call it, we wound up making a record that was not only successful, it was his most successful record ever. Needless to say, he did not lose his deal with Sony. And uh, it catapulted us into a whole different strata and put me in a position where I could sort of go off on my own and begin to solicit work as a producer. <laughs> Wow. On that record, of course, was the now infamous Rocket. Um, ha had you already worked at this point with Brian Eno? Was this after? Um, did you work with Brian Eno after that? Um, where in the timeline? We worked We worked with Eno in, uh, I guess, from 1980 to 81. Uh, so, yeah, that, that whole relationship had already happened by the time we... We worked with Hancock, which was in 83. Uh, you know, Mina was, was one of the many people who we wound up, uh, you know, recording with. And, you know, uh, wound up on one of his records, which is quite quite an honor. Mm -hmm. so, so were people finding out about you based on the work? I mean, wh what were you doing to, to have people find out about what you were doing? Well, at that point in time, being part of this team, um, we'd, <laughs> I don't know what you want to call it, the law of attraction or whatever, like stuff was just happening. It was, it was wild. I mean, the, the thing with Herbie wasn't supposed to be anything that could turn into a great big success. So when it happened like that, it was as much of a shock to us as I think it was to anyone else. Um, I think Herbie was not in a position where it really mattered what he did, so he could pretty much do anything. He had nothing to lose at that point. Um, so, but the fact that the marriage of us with Herbie 
who could produce what it produced was really a matter, I, I would say, of kismet <laughs> more than more than anything. Beyond that, though, once I got out of material, because, you know, after Herbie's success, we were all of a sudden on everyone's radar for like, you know, the guys you want to get to produce your record. And my partner at the time actually kind of, I think he decided he wanted everything for himself. <laughs> so I wound up being sidelined and I had to go off and, and seek work on my own. That was a little bit more difficult because I hadn't been directly associated with the success of Hancock's record as much as Bill had. Uh, so I found that I was in slightly less rarefied air when I began uh, hitting the pavement, looking for jobs and stuff. Um, but you know, so I had to, I really, at that point, I had to work very hard for it, you know, to try and find projects that would, uh, you know, that, that, that I could actually work on that would, that would pay me. And, uh, after about three years of that, uh, I, I got, um, I, I reached out to someone at EMI records and they said, well, we might have actually have a project for you. We've got this band that no one wants can do anything with called the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's how that happened. <laughs> so when 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 you get that call, though, I mean, you know, when you when you, when you look at the past work of music, you know, body of music, um, how did how did they feel that you were a fit for the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Uh, as I said. Um, I, they were presented to me as a band no one knew what to do with. Right. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Like in that position, they were a band who that that also means no one wants to work with. Right. <laughs> so they were sort of like at the bottom of the of the dustbin at that point. Like it, they were in a very different position, I'd say, than they are today. Right. I mean, how does how does that affect the creative? aspect i mean when you go into a project that nobody else wants to work with does it set the bar higher does it open the opportunities to go in any direction i mean how, how do you approach a project like that versus say someone who has already had uh, a certain level of success and you're trying to get the next big hit out there well i mean you know again we have to consider the time period that this is this is like 1987 the Red Hot Chili Peppers at that point had two records out, both of which were unqualified bombs, like, or I should say, absolutely qualified bombs. <laughs> there was no question about it. I mean, they were, they were, they didn't sell records. They were signed to a major label. They didn't look like anyone else on the label. They didn't act like anyone else on the label. A lot of people on the record label actually wished that they, that they didn't exist and full on and had actually and had actual dislike for them like true disdain uh, i've never seen anything like it before <laughs> but uh you know so this wasn't the case of an artist who had any prior success at all they only had two records out which again very few people understood certainly no one at their at their record company understood them you know so they were at the record company they were sort of like yeah they got one more record to go on their contract then who cares uh, so it was a, it was a whole different thing. Um, you know, in the context of back then, I think if you didn't have a certain degree of success, well, I mean, I think the same is true now. Um, so I guess the dynamic hasn't changed a whole lot, but you were, you were really seriously looked down upon, like really relegated to the, 
bottom of the heap. And, you know, in their case, they were nonconformists. They didn't, they didn't conform to any known kind of template or formula that people understood at that point in time. Because in the 80s, it was really all about formula. Like, people were very genre-driven. Mm-hmm. And these guys fell far outside of a formula. I mean, as you know, they wound up creating their own genre and their own style. You know, but that's that kind of nonconformist behavior simply isn't appreciated at record companies. And even that far back, I don't think it was. Uh-huh. Uh, at least, well, I mean, at that point in time, I think there have been like, cha- there have been historic kind of ebbs and flows as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. But at this point in time, it was all about what you know, what you understand and, and cleaving to a specific type of um, genre based stereotype almost or archetype. So, you know, from, from my perspective, it was my thing was like, yay, a job and B, yay, I can do whatever I want. This is like a blank canvas because these guys are basically, they were, they were almost searching for an identity, even though they had all the ingredients to make that identity happen. When, when you get into this project with them, I mean, uh, obviously you're, you're, you're seeing some of those ingredients, what was your process? I mean, how, how did that, how, how did it go from, Hey, we've got this, this band that no one wants to work with to the finished album. I mean, wh- how much pre-production time was, was being put into that album? What, what was your process to get these guys in the studio and get them in the right place? <laughs> um, it was, uh, if I could refer to a project and I've had a, a couple that would be on par in different ways of putting me through the ringer. This was definitely the first. (laughs) I had so many, I'm, I keep going for the word obstacles, but they weren't obstacles because they wound up being, it's interesting. They wound up being things that caused me to shift my, to shift away from whatever position that I felt strongly about on a, you know, at, at a moment's notice, it, it forced me to become as flexible as I could possibly be. So I think each thing that happened over the course of the project really kind of helped uh, make me into the person I am today in a lot of ways, uh, starting from the fact that the band had immense drug problems um, and, you know, Forgetting, of course, the fact that the record company despised them completely, didn't understand them, um, and had given me sort of a mandate of "we're not going to let you do go into a studio to work until you until you provide us with like the entire record in demo form," wow. and also the fact that the band hadn't written the entire record, and you know it was stuff like this on and on and on. Things kept happening like that over the course of the project, and it really it kind of toughened me up (laughs) in a lot of ways. Um, You know, as far as pre-production goes, I think that that was definitely the first record I did where I incorporated immense amounts of pre-production because, you know, I got a demo. My initial demo from them was three songs, all of which when I heard them were in terrible shape. Um, You know, they didn't sound good. The band sounded uninspired. Um, you know, I think on the outset, if you'd listen to that demo, you would just be like, this is, oh, this is not great, (laughs) you know, but it was interesting because there was something compelling that I couldn't really put my finger on about them. And I realized that somehow the personalities of the band 
like the guys themselves were sort of coming through the music. And I was like, this is really bad, but I like these guys. Like I get a really good feeling that there's something there. I can't really explain what it is. And it was almost like this, this desperate need to survive, to be able to, there was something beyond what they were doing musically, I think, um, that made me just sort of sign on to this project. And this obviously goes well beyond the point of like, yeah, yeah I've got a job. <laughs> Artistically, there's something there. And if we can tap into it, we've got, it's not even if it's like, we're going to tap into this, whatever it is. And that was my mission. You know, that drove me to spend months in pre-production with these guys. And we were lucky because at the time EMI had a demo studio in the back of the record company building, which we could use. And I think they paid a very nominal fee to be able to go in there and rehearse and then record demos. And, you know, we went through, I think all the drama of the record happened in that time, or most. Hmm. Most of the drama of the record happened in that time period, which was very, very significant drama. <laughs> right. Um, one of my favorite stories from that record was when the um, we'd actually gone through insane amounts of, of tribulation at this point. But somehow we'd come out the back end of it. And I'm not, I'm not going to fill you in on any of that. But we came out the back end of it. We'd managed to record all of the songs in demo form that we were going to be recording. And Anthony had actually cleaned up. He came in, he did his, he wrote his parts, he sang, he did everything. And as requested, we prepared the demos. One of the people from EMI Records, whose name I'm not going to mention, came down to listen to the demos um, on a Thursday night uh, because we had booked studio time at Capitol Studios for the following Monday. Um, and it was me and the manager. And we sat there. The gentleman came in, listened to the whole record, and got up and made toward the door. You know, and we were like, well, what do you think? And he's like, oh, we'll, we'll talk about it tomorrow. And <laughs> I was like, what? He said, yeah, talk about it tomorrow. And I was like, wait a sec. We've got studio time. You've got, we're starting a record on Monday. Let's talk about it now, please. And he was like, we'll talk about it tomorrow. And I was like, we got to get into the studio. And he's like, no one's going anywhere until I say they are. And that wow. turned into a, uh, <laughs> that turned into a, a shouting match that uh, went out onto the street. The guy got into his car. A lot of expletives were exchanged. He drove off into the night the band and the manager of the chili peppers turned around to me. And he's like, I think, I think we can deal with this. He it turns out he had some uh, dirt on this guy, <laughs> <laughs> which he presented to the president of Capitol records in such a way. It was the parent company to EMI right. in such a way where we actually got our, our green light the following afternoon. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but you know, the process in that case was flexibility. You know, and to be able to employ all and any of my skills, to be able to turn on a dime if needs be, to be adaptable and to expect the unexpected at all turns and to try and make this recording with this band to, to give them a sense of identity, which, you know, in my own opinion, their two previous records had not done at all, mm -hmm. you know, to really give them a sense of identity for you know for people who are listening who are coming in from the outside that will project the 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 nature the the intent the expressive component of the band and apparently it worked out pretty well <laughs> <laughs> 
it does seem that, you know, when you spent that amount of time with a band, I mean, obviously, you know, both on a musical level and on a personal level, you know, how, how does that focus change? Once you've put in that hard work through the pre-production period, how, how does the focus then change when you're now in the studio? Well, you know, pre-production is a very analytical process and it, and it pertains mainly to foundational aspects in a piece of music, structural aspects, arrangement aspects, orchestration aspects, you know, deciding whether or not a song is even appropriate to accompany the body of songs that you want to release in the end. Um, so there's a lot of soul searching that goes on when you're in pre-production. When you go into the studio, your focus is elsewhere, performances, sonic characteristics. You know, you're not paying as much attention, or at least I'm not paying as much attention to the structural aspects of the songs. Why? Because I spent the last seven months in this case focusing on nothing but that. Uh, so, you know, from that perspective, it's a completely, it's, it's a completely different viewpoint to take. You know, I've taken, I've basically moved around to the other end of the project and I'm looking at it from a different hill, hilltop, you know, and deciding, all right, sonically, what's the footprint of this going to be? How am I going to get the performances out of these people? You know, what's going to be, what's going to, you know, how, how do I need to, to focus in on what I need to focus in on to be able to bring out the, the aspects I want to be featured you know, in the aspect of this record that goes beyond the foundational and goes into the actual presentational. Do do you find that um, now with you know so few people spending time in the pre-production stage, is the performances suffering? Because I mean, obviously, if you're working again, going back to the Red Hot Chili Peppers with them for seven months prior to getting to the studio, I mean, those kind of psychological things you know, we've had enough time for you to, to identify them and to recognize people's character and, and what may or may not work. I mean, are we, are we finding that music is suffering, that we're not um, necessarily hearing as great of performances or that the creativity has been, uh, has been reduced because of the parameters now that are set and the budgets that are, so to speak, uh, non-existent at times? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually finding that no one's doing pre-production on anything, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm trying to focus on it almost exclusively at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in, in fact, it's an interesting trend that's happening where artists don't even know what pre-production is. And that's really, <laughs> really scary. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely seeing that people are making records of lesser quality, but the issue is from my perspective in many cases that people are doing a lot less prep work that they don't understand the importance of being able to get into the character of a song and also to be able to get a a, to be able to zoom out and being obviously the composer performer it's much harder to have an objective perspective on stuff so but you you do need that at some point so it's valuable that at that stage to bring someone in to help and I don't think that people are overthinking things, although I have seen it happen. But I, I think it's more a case if people don't even know the character of what it is that they're trying to work on when they go into the recording studio, which is just crazy to me. I mean, people just write songs and then they're like, okay, it's done. Time to record. <laughs> and I, that there's no logic to this whatsoever. I mean, it's one thing if you're muddy fucking waters. But, yeah. um, 
there is no one like Muddy Waters now. Yeah. You know, there aren't people who can like write a song on the spot and make it be composed. You know, I mean, in some genres, yes, but in terms of being like a blues performer, a rock performer, it doesn't happen. You know, I mean, Led Zeppelin were able to do that from time to time, but there are a lot of songs they wrote that took years for them to hone, mm-hmm. where they would sit with them for years, where they would bump them off records until they had them just right. You know, uh, same with the Beatles, you know, and uh, without that kind of ability to be able to zoom out and look objectively on a piece of work that you've written, you're unable to really kind of get to the core of it anyhow. And uh, I think it's very important that people are able to take the requisite amount of time. And I, from what I've seen, people just don't have that now. You know, with the Chili Peppers, it was a unique situation. I've done other records where actually where pre-production lasted at least that long. <laughs> and, um, you know, unfortunately, in all cases, or most cases anyway, that was really necessary. Like, it had to be done. Um, I did one record where I was handed a CD of 40 tracks, two of which actually seemed to be completed structures except only one of them had three sections <laughs> the other one had two <laughs> it just went back to back which meant that neither of them were finished nothing had vocals on it nothing had lyrics and the other 38 were jams and wow. i was like okay see what you can make out of this this is going to be our new record oh my and gosh I, just, I said to the artist no this is not your new record we're going to have to start your new record from scratch and that's going to take a long time hope you're ready so how do you get the best out of the artist in, in the studio as far as a performance uh, is considered? I mean, what, what is your process of, say, working with a, a, with a singer to get a great vocal take? Um, it's very flexible. I mean, it kind of has to be. Um, you know, I've worked... It's, it's funny, I did a panel at the NAMM convention over the weekend um, where we were talking about things like this. And one of the people on the panel was very adamant about the idea of making a per- making performers as comfortable as possible, to which I would say, yes, that's very true. But there is a, uh, <laughs> there's a sort of a caveat to that. And that is, it doesn't work all the time because not everyone who's an artist is responsive to the same stimulus, Mm -hmm. you know, stimuli. Um, Not everyone responds to being made comfortable. In fact, I've been around people who actually look at you with suspicion if you're attempting to kind of, if you do things that they perceive is, is kind of like a machination or something like that to get that, you know, you're manipulating me. (laughs) They They feel that you're kind of like, that you're trying to, manipulate them to get something out of court that they don't see no i'm actually trying to do this so that you're able to do your best work even though yes it benefits me it really benefits you more um you know so there's a lot of there's a lot of psychology that comes into play um it's it's really interesting actually um i've you know i've had to go both ways i've had to put people in a very 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 uncomfortable state in some cases, I've had to essentially make a performer think that they were not actually doing a real performance when in fact they were. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in other cases, it's all about making a person as comfortable as possible and going beyond that to actually take the presence of anyone who they could consider as being critical um, or judgmental completely out of the picture, including my own, you know, to the point where I would actually record someone, set them up with all the equipment and say, here you go, bud. It's all you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, I know a lot of people and the person who was making the comments about making other people feel comfortable would probably be one of them who feel that bands function best when they're playing together live. And I have experienced in many cases the complete polar opposite. Um, in fact, watching some bands perform, um, I was all, I was struck by how uncomfortable they were actually being out in front of a bunch of people. Uh, so when I wound up working with them, my aim was to find a completely different way of, of giving them that, a sense of comfort, which in the case of this one particular artist was to, was to total, thoroughly insulate them and put them in complete control of everything that they did. So that any feedback that they had to get was well after the fact at a point where they could, where they could be in the same position to accept the feedback uh, and also give feedback themselves, you know, so they felt like they were in complete control of everything. So it varies. Are there um, certain exercises that you have people do to help them get into their creative space? And uh, I guess I'll add to that. Um, I know that in your book, you, you talk a little bit about meditation. Um, perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on on your perspective regarding meditation and music and if there's any specific things that you um, have found to do with different projects that have helped people to get into a creative space and a, a place to perform from. Well, um, I do find that meditation can be very helpful for people because it kind of makes them present within themselves and it kind of cut, it cuts them off from a lot of the distractions, uh, which as you are probably aware, we're all incredibly prone to, uh, especially in an age where everyone's gazing at screens all day long. And, uh, my, you know, my feeling about meditation is that, yeah, it, it takes you inside. It puts you back in yourself, which is a very strange place to be if you've been divorced from that for a while. But, um, meditation is very simple you know there's so many different ways to do it um some people will actually spend money on courses to do transcendental meditation other people go to an ashram you know and meditate with a mantra or they'll just sit at home and you know do meditation where they're just not doing anything for like 10 or 15 minutes sitting in a you know sitting or lying down and focusing on the, on nothing but the breathing just staying focused on like one thing to take and you know if thoughts come up they just sort of let them happen but they don't follow them uh and it's a very effective tool for being able to shut the mind down which as we all know is one of the main things that causes us to divert from the things that we really want to get done (laughs) you know it's it's funny because everyone i talk to has the same complaint my mind it's just making too much noise. There's too much chatter going on up there. I can't concentrate because my mind is always kind of taking me in different directions. And meditation is the simplest way to do that. But, you know, I mean, you can take anything at all 
and turn in the world and turn that into a mindfulness practice even washing dishes you can just be there and just stay focused on the act of washing dishes and boom you're essentially in some sort of meditation practice right there um you know i it it really depends on who you're working with. Some people are very resistant to that stuff too. Some people, they're in such a comfort zone with it, with their the state of their mind that they don't really want to get away from it. Because when you do start being present like that, it, as I said before, it's very uncomfortable. Um, you know, because we do have an immense addiction to um, to our distractions. We're very addicted to them. So uh, getting away from them and forcing ourselves to focus on something other can be can be <laughs> can be pretty troublesome in some cases um but it, it can be very helpful for those who really kind of follow it and get something out of it absolutely well i'm curious um you know when you're in the studio is is that something that can uh, i have noticed in the studio where the performer can go from performing from the heart so to speak in which the music is coming out and it's there's no there's nothing blocking per se to then having feedback given which results in now the performer is trying to do what they think you want them to do and it's now gone from the heart to the head um is is this something that you know you you experience and is this something that you know perhaps the meditation may be of use yeah yeah it can definitely be of use i you know i Unfortunately, a lot of people have that issue. Uh, and, you know, to some extent, most people want to please, even if they're, they, they're sort of like a difficult <laughs> artist, you know, at their, at their essence, there is a part of them that wants to, wants to please someone else and wants approval for what they're doing. Um, I find, I found over time that, I, I have to judge very carefully the artist I'm giving feedback to. Uh, otherwise, they're going to fall into that pattern very, very easily and very quickly. Um, you know, so I found that by sizing people up, like I worked with one artist who whose vocal performances just got better and better technically. And, you know, they kind of reach a plateau as far as technical excellence. But every single last one of them with like a very, with like a exception here and there had absolutely no feeling whatsoever. I mean, it was vibeless and there you could base, you could almost see the gears turning in their brain while they were trying to sing. And it was absolutely repulsive <laughs> to <Right>. listen to. <laughs> and I realized at one point that I'd heard them do really really letter perfect vocal performance i'm not 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 technically in right. fact technically they were all over the shop but right. they had all the vibe i was looking for and where they were was <laughs> the very first day i put up a vocal mic and i had this person do guide vocals right. <laughs> so i went back to those vocals after months months of trying to get like the right vocal performances and boom there it was it was perfect and i was like that's it, you know, and I told the, the vocalist and they were like, not happy, <laughs> right? you know, but they, they'd actually um, right, been down this road before. Um, they'd done some acting work and the director that they work with said the same thing. This person is, the, you got to get 
the first take, that's the one. After that, forget it. Uh, and that's that particular performer, and everyone's different. Some people aren't going to start out of the gate. In some cases, you got to get real lucky. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where, you're, where you're at this this weird juncture where you've given minimal feedback, and the artist is still in that place where they're able, where, where their voice is warmed up. You know, because in a lot of cases, people don't warm up until they've gone through like maybe two, three, even five vocal passes. You know, but by then they've been they've asked you for feedback and you can't like hold back because if you do they're going to start getting uncomfortable because like what are are they thinking what is he thinking about me you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know so you kind of have to render something you have to be diplomatic but you also know this person is hanging on my every word if i say something that sounds too politically correct they're going to take that as being like oh they're not doing a good job so you know it's it's all a matter of measuring the situation, engaging what the artist's temperament is like from moment to moment, and also how secure and insecure they are as a person, where their neurosis is going to kick in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I won't lie. There's a lot of questions I would love to ask you. I, I, um, I'm, of course, very curious on your process of recording drums. I know on the one hand, there's the stories of fire drummers, but on, on a groove oh, yeah. level, uh, you know, I've always... You know, whenever I've had an opportunity to talk to producers and drummers, to me, the um, the idea of groove and time is is a as a deep interest for me. And and uh, mm. I, I I know as a musician, you know, there's that moment in which it seems that you can stretch time, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, and all of a sudden everything, I guess you could say, slows down. Um, but when I've, when I've talked to different people, I remember talking to, to Steve Jordan about, uh, drumming and being in the pocket and that experience of time and, you know, how you, how you get everybody to, to be on the same understanding of the groove and how that impacts a performance. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know if, 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 if you're, uh, if you'd like to, 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 to maybe give some insight as to how you approach drums and time and groove, if we have time for that. Um, uh, I'd rather skip it. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, No, I wrote about this in my book too, actually, because I think it's very important. And I think that it's for, to me, this is something that people are missing out on quite a bit because there's so much reliance on grids and on drum editing and having things lining up to the next 16th note and stuff like that. And, you know, I, Groove and feel are matters of perception. You know, it's you can you can actually take something, you can take a very stiff underlay or fairly stiff underlay and make it less stiff if things that you put on top of it actually have different relative start points in terms of like the one. Um, of course, that's not my <laughs> that's not my first choice. I, I do prefer it when all the instruments are playing and using some degree of groove or feel. Um, and starting from the drums, I think it's very important for the drummer to find exactly where that sits for him. Uh, now, going back to the grid, a lot of drummers feel that their ultimate position is right on downbeats, you know, just so that they're, they're locked in completely. And my own feeling is that over time, uh, I've, I've seen that the one... <laughs> actually has an infinite number of start points. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and by that, I mean that like 
there's so many fractions of a second that a person can come down on their one beat um, that that almost defines who they are. Like you can pick out a player, an individual player based on where they decide to put their downbeats. Um, it, it, it's a mid, well, I mean, like obviously tone plays a large factor in that as well. And, you know, where they, you know, where they put their hi hats and how they tune their drums. But like, but really it, so much of this comes down to how they approach the groove. Um, a lot of people talk about laying back. It's, it's a very simplified way of, of addressing what rhythm playing actually is. To me, it's interdependence. I treat the drum kit as not one instrument, but a series of different instruments, each one of which has its own start point. I tend to find that in groove, even from drummers who claim that they lay back, they're actually pushing very hard. <laughs> Where they're laying back is what they're doing with their arms. Like the foot is always out in front, but people don't think from their foot. Most people don't think in terms of what my bass drum is doing. They're thinking because their arms are closer to their head and they can see their arms and their brain and everything else. It's all, it's all a little bit closer, you know, but the groove comes from the bass drum, in my opinion. You know, the snare drum kind of, uh, it sort of roots it a little bit more and whatever's happening in the ride you know, whether it's a hi-hat or a ride cymbal, it kind of, it sort of cements what that is. But within those, within those instruments, you know, just three different instruments, you have an infinite number of groove-based possibilities that you can apply to a piece of music. Um, it's, that, that is what makes it so much fun. And then you're looking at what the other instruments on top of the drums are doing, you know, which from my mind, like I always like to hear a bass pushing very hard against the drums, which automatically, even if the drummer's pushing, gives the drummer a scent to a listener, makes the drummer seem like he's laying back. See, it's all about perception. It's really fascinating. And I guarantee you, if you go back and start listening to some records, you're going to hear this happen. I can give you two, I can give you a few examples. Um, one of which is, um, Give it up or turn it loose off the uh, live James Brown record that he did in Augusta GA. Listen to the breakdown of that song and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about because you can hear the instruments first drop out completely and then slowly come back in. The way the drums are playing, you know, you can hear the kick drum, but what's really incredible is when the bass comes in immediately you get a rush right. and you'll hear what I'm talking about, man, because the bass is sitting so far ahead of the drums, but he's making, all of a sudden he comes in the, as good as the drummer is. And he's one of the best drummers ever. Bootsy's bass playing totally creates this whole different thing that wasn't there before. And I, I actually wrote this in the book too. You know, this is one of these great examples of seeing interdependent playing at its best. Um, Another example is um, Helter Skelter by the Beatles, um, hmm. which you may not know. John Lennon actually played bass. I think they swapped, some of them swapped instruments on this. Oh, I didn't know that. And um, the drums and bass are panned. Listen to where the bass guitar is relative to the drums, and you will get a shock. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's all I'm saying, because not only is the bass incredibly far ahead of the drums, it's, he's almost playing a different tempo. 
It's wow. crazy, and he's doing it consistently as well. Um, shows you how good of a rhythm player John Lennon was, but also he's way, way out in front, and it makes the song sound quicker than it actually is. Like the song is could be considered a little draggy from the drums' point of view, but it isn't with the bass in, and it creates a whole different thing. So you can play with these things. You know, people who use who are relying on a grid and on clicks and on well, I mean, clicks help. But relying on clicks to edit a song to and that all the instruments have to come on the same downbeat there. I'm not going to say that anyone's making music records the wrong way. I'm what I am going to say is that you are missing so much by not playing around with these things and seeing how much more captivating they can make a piece of music, how much more engaging you can make a piece of music when the rhythm section is working like this instead of like a machine. Well, I won't lie, as you're saying this, I'm thinking, man, that would be so cool to listen to albums with Michael and hear uh, what he's <laughs> hearing on them, because it's, uh, it's like you said, it's all about perception, and I think that... Uh, you got two examples. I mean, I guarantee when you listen to these things, you will never be able to listen to Rhythm Section playing the same way again. You cannot unhear them, and they're, they're very revelatory. As I was mentioning, to me, the whole idea of groove and, and where people are coming from, I, I sort of talk about it as being lenses, you know, and, and being able to see through the same lens as the other musician or, you know, because it is, it's always those perspectives. And it's, it's so fascinating to me too, when you're, when you're in a room with musicians and you, you're listening and you sort of can tell something's not quite right. And then when you ask them what, what underlying, you know, subdivision of a beat is going on in their minds, you know, how, how quickly you can find that one person's got the 16th feel going on and the other person's got the chord notes going on. And, you know, when, when everyone gets on that same perspective, just how much of a difference it makes to the music, which technically is a subtle difference. It's a, it's a perspective difference, but at the same time, you know, from what you then hear and how people are interacting is, is so, so different. And again, it's, it's just those nuances. And that's one of the things that fascinates me about music and whether it's a three minute song or, or, you know, some lengthy uh, prog rock song, you know, at the end <clears> of the day, what we're experiencing as a listener does does differ when you go deep and you you know you find these things and 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 these perspectives so okay. i'm a huge believer in working on perspective working on the mind working on things that are automatically going to affect whether it's performance and music or other things and so when <laughs> books come out that are going a little bit deeper and getting into the psyche and getting into the, you know, the creative space. But I find those to be far more inspiring than any kind of a book, you know, whether it's bands telling you all the crazy stories and how they recorded oh, a certain album. It's, it's not translatable. <laughs> I don't feel to, to it's a waste. It, it's fun. The anecdotes are entertaining. That's exactly why I didn't include any anecdotes in my yeah. book because you know, that, that stuff it, it's, you're going to get a good laugh out of it. You'll be entertained, but ultimately you gain absolutely nothing from it at all other than like, well, that was a fun way to spend a couple of hours, you know, but what about stuff that you can take away for, you know, and use for a lifetime, you know, that really has value. And yeah, I mean like what you're saying about stuff that affects the mind and perception is ultimately all of it because the only thing, no matter how much you want to believe in anything else, anything else, Thing that shapes everything that you do is squirrely between your own two ears. That's it. There mm -hmm. is nothing else, <laughs> you know. And if you have some kind of relationship with that, as opposed to feeling as if you're at the effect of everything else, you 
are able to do so many wonderful things and really maximize your capabilities. And that's, that's what I, what I indirectly was writing about actually. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I get that. I'm curious, you know, if, if someone, if an artist was to ask your advice in regards to how to pursue a career in music, what, what is your recommendation when, cause I'm sure, you know, the panels and these different things, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot. Um, what is what is a, a go-to piece of advice that you you tend to to give people? Well, I, th- I think I wrote about it a little in the book too. But it's like you know, find yourself, like find who you are. You know, who are you? Why are you doing this? What does this mean to you? Is this a means to set you know to tell to express some deep emotional kind of you know core? that's just bubbling up inside of you and you just happened on music as an expressive, as a medium to be able to, uh, you know, that would be the best possible way to get this stuff out. Or is this a way to make money or get laid? You know, mm-hmm. are you going to use this as a springboard to design like a fashion line and, you know, in a perfume or something, <laughs> like you know, if you're doing that, then you're talking to the wrong person, um, <laughs> you know, but find what your intent is. What is your intent? Why are you doing this? What do you want to achieve? You know, is this something that keeps you up at night? You know, wondering about it. You know, what are these feelings inside of me? What do they mean? You know, how can I express them? How, and, and more importantly, how can I express them accurately in a way that feels unique and real to me? With that, I want to say thank you so much for your time, Michael. And uh, I'm going to make sure there's links here um, for people for the book. And also, of course, you know, the opportunity to work with you in pre-production, which is something as you're mentioning that you're offering and, and there really isn't, there really isn't many people doing it. And there certainly aren't people of your caliber that, um, you know, are offering it to the, to the public like you are. So of course I advocate for anybody that's serious about making music to look into that as an option and possibility. So there'll be a link. Is there anywhere in particular other than uh, your website that you would like people to go to find out more or to, to, to listen to? Is there anything that um, you'd like me to make a point of having available for people? No, I appreciate you asking, though. I mean, the book and the website really pretty much sum it up. But go to that. Check it out. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you, Michael. And I, will, uh, I will let you go, and I look forward to being in touch in the, in the future. Yeah, please. This was great. It's great meeting you and having this conversation. All right, man. Well, you have a great rest of your day, and and we'll be in touch soon. Thanks, man. You too. Take care. You have been listening to Aaron Bethune. Until next time, stay above the noise.